My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here um, at the Hallows Church. It's good to be with you. And I want to take this next uh, few minutes um, for all of us just to gather together and lift some prayers up to God. Um, the first things that I want to do is I just want to give real quick uh, a quick shout out to Grace Church. Grace Church is here. It's this kind of large group of folks uh, right up in the front, which is, yes, give them a round of applause. So these are, Grace Church is a, a church over in Camas, and they have brought their interns to come and just do a 24-hour retreat. Now, the really cool thing, and the reason why they're here, is because last night they stayed the night in the church. Downstairs. It was, it was just, it was really cool. So it was really fun greeting you guys last night. It was really fun to have you guys here. And uh, that applause is also a thank you to the work that you did in our Wallingford building yesterday as you came and helped us paint and continue on some of those projects. So thanks, guys. And it's really great to have you here worshiping with us. Yeah. And the next thing I'd like to um, share with you that we can all be praying about is last week we had talked about our values, our core values of what we believe as a church, what we want to celebrate, what we want to do as a church. And what we wanted to put before us now, using our times to pray together, we're going to be looking at our ministry teams and kind of praying over those ministry teams and asking um, for volunteers, kind of calling those who feel called or compelled or feel that the Lord is stirring your heart to serve in these ways to do so, to come and, and volunteer and be there. And so today what we want to focus on is our kids' ministry. As you guys know, our kids' ministry has um, been up and running. We're trying to get more classes going after the pandemic and after the closure. And it's taken time. It's taken time because families are at all different places, all different perspectives. There's a lot to be, um, to be thought about when it comes to this. But something we don't want to lose sight of is the investment of ministering to our children, to be able to answer their questions, to be able to talk with them, to be able to speak truth over them, to be able to sing truth over the little ones, to the babies, to the toddlers, to be able to sit with a five-year-old and worship Jesus with him. These are valuable, beautiful things that we don't want to lose sight of and we don't want to neglect or we don't want to move past just because there's a reluctancy to serve. So these things are, are wonderfully important for us and we want to just pray that your hearts would be stirred. And this is what specifically what we're asking for. Lizelle, our kids ministry director, she's been doing a lot of great work in organizing and putting this kids ministry and the structures together. And what she's been looking at is we're asking for three to four people to serve every six weeks. Once every six weeks, three to four people would give us the room to be able to support our nursery and toddler room along with moving towards opening up that, that preschool room, that four to six-year-olds. Three to four people, once every six weeks. I really hope that you guys will be thinking through that and asking if, if God's maybe leading you in that direction. So let's pray. Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, first we come before you and we thank you for Grace Church and the camaraderie we share in the gospel. Thank you, God, for all that you're doing in that church. Thank you for these interns. Thank you for your brothers and sisters in Christ that come all over this, this long way to Seattle to spend time together, to get to know one another, to encourage and lift each other up, but in doing so, serve another church. God, you're, you're wonderful in how you do that, and thank you for them. And I pray that there would be more opportunities for us to partner with them, um, whether it's them coming and spending the night here again, or maybe it's um, going out in the city and uh, proclaiming the gospel some way and somehow. Thank you for them. Thank you for the, the um, partnership that we have. And God, we want to lay before your feet our kids' ministry. God, thank you for our opportunity that we have to invest in our children. Thank you for the spiritual formation that you grace us with and the opportunity to share the gospel. Lord, we remember how profound 
it is to hear your word and to have a, a spiritual question, a question about you and your character answered when we were young. If, we were, if some of us were young in hearing the gospel for the first time, it came through someone else who had learned that before us. And we don't want to miss this opportunity, God, for, for that to happen. So we pray for our kids' ministry. We pray for the coming volunteers who see the vision of teaching the gospel to our, our young children. We ask, God, that those roles that we need, that we believe are, are important and vital in maintaining a healthy balance of this kids' ministry, that those would be filled. God, I pray that you, would, that you would show us and let us celebrate the good work that you're doing here at the Hallows Church. We love you and we thank you, God, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 20a. By this time, Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city. And Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night, and Saul said, Consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. And then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit from form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, what does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell flat on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
Thank you, Sharon. What a passage. If, you've, uh, if you're new here, if you're visiting here for the first time, um, what we've been journeying through, what we've been studying these past several months is 1 Samuel, where our series is titled, When Mess Meets Mercy. This morning, we're going to be exploring chapter 28, what Sharon just read for us. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn over there to chapter 28, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 20, just like what she read for us. Um, if you don't have a Bible... If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like one, we have a stack of Bibles in the back there that are the, uh, the CSB translation, the same translation that we just heard. And if you read it and you like the Bible that you're holding that you got from the back, we would love for you to take it as our gift to you because we have many a copies and we'd love to give them out. So while you're opening over there, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy and love and the grace that you give us in your son, Jesus. And we ask you, God, that you would open our eyes, open our ears. Let us see and let us hear your word and the truth of the gospel that's within it. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So Job 12, verse 22, it reads, he reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deepest darkness into light. Now, this comforts me in light of today's passage. Because if you've been walking through 1 Samuel with us, this morning's passage is quite dramatic. It's not the kind of norm that we get to see in 1 Samuel. It's a, a unique story, and it's really a pinnacle kind of moment in Saul's story, this main character, this first king of Israel. And so Saul, the king of Israel, he's officially hit rock bottom. This is the deepest, darkest moment of Saul. The character that we've been journeying with, that we've seen coming from in chapter 9, a, a, a son who was a foot taller than everyone else and just loved his, his father, being called into this new position as Israel sought for a king that looked like the other nations and looked to Saul and said, that's him, that's the guy, bring him forward. We don't want to listen to what God says, we want this guy. All of this journey that we've seen through 1 Samuel has now come and reached this pinnacle moment in Saul's life. And unfortunately, it's a state of hopelessness. And fear misconstrued fear has turned him to go down all of the wrong places. And yet, God reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deepest darkness into the light. Is God really at work in such a godless text? In a passage where the king of Israel abandons his duties, abandons his people, seeks the advice of a medium, what we can also, what we'll be calling a witch, and where the only truth spoken, the only words of truth spoken are from a talking dead person. What does this say about God who brings darkness into light. I'd like to explore three dynamics this morning at play and rest underneath this story, this dramatic story. For all the misery this passage brings to Saul, the larger story, the grander narrative at play is, at the is in the power of God's purpose in the gospel. Because what we will see is that on the cross, the, the story of Jesus, Jesus himself endured the silence and separation of God so that we might trust God in face of all of our fears. So what I want to do is I want to start us off in verses 5 and 6 and explore this first dynamic, which is the silence of God, God's silence towards Saul. 
This is what verse 5 and 6 says. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. So let's look at that because that's a really powerful, that's already powerful. The Lord did not answer him. Let's dive into that. Because waiting on the Lord is hard. Waiting on the Lord is hard. Seeking discernment to take the right next step, it requires us to put ourselves in a posture of waiting to be confident in God's plan for us. However, it's also really important that we read verses like this, like verse 6, in their proper context so that we can, so we don't apply or conclude that God is silent to us now just because we read it in this moment. Okay, because there's kind of two things happening. And, but first, it is sad, and, it's, and our hearts really should ache any time we read that for anyone. Past or present, we should be, our hearts should be saddened by someone actually experiencing God's silence. Actually experiencing God's silence. It's, it's unbearable, as we can see. But in Saul's case... It's a consequence of years of past sins and of approaching God's will superstitiously rather than submissively. Approaching God's will super, uh, what did I say? Superstitiously. There we go. Make sure I said that right. So over the course of Saul's kingship, he has this, this priority towards himself right? If you look back in chapter 9, some of the first, the, the actual, the first words that Saul says is something to the effect of, I want to go back. Like, I don't want to go forward towards what God calls me. I want to go back, right? And there's been this self-centeredness that Saul has had. There's also been this deep fear of, of uh, being overtaken by the Philistines. And what that has happened is that he never approached God as, as a God to be submitted to. Rather, he approached God as a God who bends towards his self-worth and actions. Over the course of time, all of the things that he's done, every inquiry of, of the Lord has been for a selfish motive. And when we look at the heart behind that, we see that it's really not approaching God in a way that's humble, in a way that is, is fostering confession or repentance. If you look through 1 Samuel, there's only one instance, and it's really not an instance at all, what it proves not to be, is, any, is of repentance. There is no repentance within Saul. And so we have to ask, we go back to, so being the king of Israel and leading God's people as someone who's supposed to be submissive to God's will, this is really not good to live years like this. And it's culminated in chapter 15 when Saul, he spares Agag, the Amalite king. Huge moment in this book when he spares the Amalite king after God himself had said, separate from them and destroy all of them. He commands Samuel, he commands Saul to eliminate all of the Amalekites, right? But Saul spares him because he wants to keep some of the stuff and he thinks it's kind of a good idea. And it leads to this. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel, the, er, I'm sorry, Saul, it leads to Saul's undoing and judgment by Samuel the prophet who says, I will not return with you because you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So there's that moment. A pivotal moment in Saul's kingship where the, the robe of kingship has officially been removed from him over this, the consequence of this, of this sin. But it's also, when you look up, when it says that the Lord did not answer him by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets, that's because in the past here, in chapter 22, we have the story of Saul killing all of the priests. 
Samuel chapter 22, the king said to Doeg, go and execute the priests. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. One evil man standing beside the king executes all of the priests. And on that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. He also struck down Nob, the city of priests, with the sword, both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. Saul isn't hearing from the priests, God through the priests anymore, because he killed them all. A lifetime of selfish ambition and unrepentant acts of cruelty will lead one to not to be able to distinguish what is true reality and what the sinful choices that they're all wrapped up in. Sin has consequences, as we can see. God's silence towards Saul is a consequential judgment through a have it your way. Have it your way. You have eliminated and roped off every measure that I have tried to speak to you. I have provided all these things for you to come before you so that you would confess and repent and turn from your sin, but you have eliminated them. In Saul's case, so God says, have it your way. And this is really what sin can do as we see Saul in this moment. And I've shared this before, but it's kind of worth noting again as an example. There's this old father of the faith, St. Augustine, and he lived during the gladiator games. And so when those were real, gladiator games, his friends, it's not just like the movies, his, uh, his friends of his, they would attend them and they really grew like pretty addicted to watching them. And he had one friend who didn't want to go. He thought that they were horrible. He didn't want to be anything a part of that. But St. Augustine, he tells this time when his, these, these other friends, they roughed him up. And against his will, they carried him, his friend, into the gladiator games. And they sat him down at the chair. And as soon as he sat there, there's this eruption of applause as people are just enjoying through entertainment this gruesome, like, killing of people. And Augustine's friend, he clenches his eyes closed and he refuses to see. But it says that the violence and the sounds became so loud and so irresistible that he finally began to open them. And Augustine said that the guilty, drunken, bloody pastime entered through his ears unlocked his eyes and unconsciously and made a way for the striking and the beating down of his soul. He fixed his eyes unconsciously and drank the madness of it all. Listen to this part. It says, and when he left, he wasn't the same man that entered, but was like those that he had left, that he had joined. And what we know is that this person becomes highly addicted to the, to the gladiator games. This, what we become exposed to, what we do, these sins have consequences from us. So for us, if we are experiencing God's silence and there is a prod within us of a sin that we have not brought to the light. Friends, bring it to the light. We do not want sin to grow and to fester within our hearts. We need to bring it to the light of Jesus. Confession, repentance starts with confession. Letting light, Christ's light shine on every area, every nook and cranny within our souls. Because through confession comes forgiveness. 
And in forgiveness comes God's very presence. And only there, only there in the company of the Holy Spirit, ministering to our hearts, lifting our souls into the light, only there can we see sin as it truly is, walk away from it. That's repentance. Repentance is to turn away. But we can't turn away if we don't know what we're seeing. If we're swimming in darkness all around us, we're not going to be able to see. We need the light of the Holy Spirit to shine on us. But let's say something else. Let's say another end. Let's say it's not something because of sin, because God isn't silent just because we're sinful. Sometimes there are other reasons that God is silent. So we need to address that too. When God is silent, when you have been waiting, anxiously anticipating a word from the Lord, a movement, a something, a, a step, give me something, give me something there. God instructs us to sit and knock. To sit and knock. Wait on the Lord. Trust Him over the circumstances that you might see before you. Scripture is filled with people waiting. Honestly, it's probably more people waiting than it is like doing other things, right? Like if we really put like lifetimes, there's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of just sitting down <laughs> and waiting on God to do something. But that's the beauty of contentment that we find when we wait before God's silence, knowing that he will respond. Sit and knock. The, the Lord is too gracious, too gracious and too loving to leave his children asking for a rescue and asking for an answer. And it's in waiting that the scriptures reveal to us our deep worship wounds, reveal to us the next steps forward. Proverbs, it says, wait on the Lord and he will rescue you. The Psalms say, be still and know that I am God. When silence comes in, when you're in that season, press into the Lord so that clarity of mind can come. Silence isn't always a result of sin, but in our posture to reflect active listening is vitally important for us in our faith. Waiting postures us towards the Lord. Sin's nature, however, is to hide and to act impulsively on our desires. Sin's nature wants to hide. It wants to hide. God described this moment when he's talking to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Just before Cain is about to murder Abel, do you guys know that God approached Cain and talked to him three times. There's three moments where he calls Cain to repent. He says, what, what are you doing? Look what you're doing. God says, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. You must rule over it. You must rule over it. And this is what Saul rejected. And our story goes from bad to worse. So let me draw your attention to verse 7 where it reads, Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. So this plan, just so everybody knows, so we're all over, this plan involves traveling past the Philistine army to the other side of the Philistine camp. So the Philistines that he is so fearful of, he's going to go seek a witch's advice and travel across that camp. But in order to do that, because it's so risky, he's going to take off his royal robes. He's going to disguise himself in desperation. His desperation outweighs his consequences. So he removes his royal robes, he puts on a disguise, and he travels with his servants to the Witch of Endor. Just a quick side note. Like, how did his soldiers... So they kicked them all out, right? How did his soldiers know exactly where one was? 
Think about that. You know, it's like the police officer or like, a, you know, someone in power is like, we're removing all of the drug dealers from all of our cities. By the way, do you know where I can go get something? Yes, I do. It's right over here, right? It's like, wait a minute. Something's going on. <laughs> Something's not right. And so anyway, his plans, we're going to look now. He travels to this witch of Endor. But what we're about to see is that his plans and her specialties do not reveal his wit or her skill, but instead they reveal the sovereignty of God. So verse 8, let's continue on. It says, Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night and said, Consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. Now, there's probably a consensus, but it's also really important to note, this is a really bad idea. This is a bad idea. This is obviously a bad idea. Even the medium, the witch, knows it's a bad idea. In verse 9, she's like, what are you talking about? That's a, Saul is going to kill me if he finds out, which she's standing in front of him. But Deuteronomy 18 just shows the depths of how bad this is. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12, it says, No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead. Plain as day. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord. And the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. Here's another one in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6. It says, Whoever turns to mediums or spiritists and prostitutes himself with them, I will turn against that person and cut him off from his people. There are passages in Scripture that take time to meditate on and to interpret. These are not them. These, super clear. <laughs> it's clear to us now, and it was clear to Israel then. It was clear to Israel because we know that because Saul, in, in the first uh, couple of verses, it says he drove them out acting on these laws. So he knew exactly what he was doing. But going to the, per, the, the principle of this, because God forbid his people not to participate in magic or mysticism, not because they didn't work, but because they were wicked. Not because magic and mysticism doesn't work, it's because it is wicked. Seeking magic and mysticism opens yourself up to spiritually dark, demonic influences. Satan lures at an opening door and is waiting for moments to walk through them. And that's the problem. That's a, that's a problem with our culture's assumptions right now in that all spirituality is good. No, not all spirituality is good. But right now, especially among the millennial generations, witchcraft, psychic services is currently worth $2 billion annually. That includes astrology, aura reading, mediumship, tarot card readings, palmistry, and other types of metaphysical services. Friends, do not think that this is just some ancient passage. No, it's here, and it's making $2 billion every year. That's insane. 
These facts, they show us two things. They show first the demonic power and the influence over a culture that doesn't want to distinguish between spiritual practices. But the other is that those participating in these things are seeking fate in the future on their own terms. They're seeking their fate in their future on their own terms, just like Saul. He knew it was wrong, and he even acted on these laws earlier. He kicked them all out, and out of fear and desperation, met with the consequences of God's silence, tempted him again to seek after his own fate on his own terms. So for Saul, this meant seeking fate in the darkest, in the darkness, in the darkest of places. Verse 11 through 12, the witch asks, Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. And when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. And then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. Something unusual is going on here. Because that kind of response is not the type of response that would have happened. So commentators agree that there's this break in these moments, a reaction that's unfitting for the, the a reaction to the action is, is unfitting. Something happened in this, in this moment. And what it is is that it's a, an act of surprise because it's most likely that her powers were not used. Instead, a stronger power over her divining powers was at work bringing up the spirit of Samuel. A stronger power overrode what was about to happen. A greater power than her own was revealed in the deepest, darkest places. That is an example of the sovereignty of God. God, in his sovereignty, overrode the situation to accomplish his purpose. Do you guys remember the... Um, the Lion King, Mufasa. You remember how he's like sitting there? I'm going to come back. He's, he's sitting there with Simba, and he's like, everything that the light touches is ours, right? And then he's like, but don't go over there, right? Don't go over there. That's the scary stuff. God in his sovereignty does not work like that. God is sovereign over everything. Over everything. The deepest, darkest scariest places. So what does that mean? It means that Saul, as try as he might, he could not escape God. You see that? He could not escape what God was doing. And when we look at this passage in that light, it actually becomes kind of comical. Because this scary witch of Endor one of the scary moments in this is now actually scared herself and has, because she has no power or control over this situation, right? The scary person is now getting scared. And it reminds me of this week when I was at, uh, I was taking Elliot, my son Elliot and Tavia, we were at Home Depot. And it's, this is like my least favorite. It's my favorite time of the year. It's my least favorite time of the year because I hate all the Halloween decorations. Hate that stuff. You know, I don't like it. I don't like, like, turning a corn, corner in Home Depot and be like, <laughs> you know, like, what is that? I spook easy. And my kids, they were looking at, like, the different pumpkins and stuff, and I was trying to look and, like, around and see if there was anything, you know, around the corner. And <laughs> I was like, okay, I think we're safe and stuff. And then they're all laughing and stuff, and then I just hear silence. And I was like, oh, no. And I turn around the corner, and they're both like this terrified at this like witch thing that's like moving and has a creepy voice like holding the book of scary stuff 
And they're just like super close to it. And I was like, get out of here, you know, move, come on, come back to me. And, and they come back here, and, and I was like, you know what, guys, there's scary stuff. That's why we just want to try to avoid some of these areas. But I could tell that it was kind of bothering Elliot as we were walking through the store afterwards. Like, it was, it was kind of starting to bother him. Like, he was starting to look around. He was kind of concerned. He was holding my hand a little tighter. And I, and I remember that as a kid of seeing something really scary, and it's sticking with you. And in that moment, I said, you know what, Elliot? When I get scared of stuff like that that I see, I like to think of ripping out the batteries and just throwing it in the wood chipper, you know? I like to think of throwing it into stuff. And all of a sudden, he thought, he's like, yeah. We're throwing it off a building. Yeah. Just destroying it. Yeah. I'm not talking about like defacing public property or anything like that, or like private property, but like when it comes to scary stuff, I'll entertain that with a six-year-old. But what does that point to? What, what is that, what is that, you know, what am I trying to do there? I wanted to share with him that in that moment, in those moments, when you can be really scared because you see something that's scary. Kids, it's something, that, an image that you see. Adults, it's something maybe that you experience that's terrifying. We can always rest secure because there is always, in every moment, a greater power, a greater power at work even in those dark things that scare us. Even in Sheol, the abode of the dead, as, as Scripture kind of describes it, God's presence and sovereignty are there. David would later describe this in Psalm 139, where he says, where can I escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The truth of God's word and his sovereignty follows Saul even to Sheol. He cannot escape it. Saul couldn't escape the sovereignty of God just like he could not escape the judgment of God. Let me draw your attention back to verse 17 where Samuel, he reminds Saul of his past judgment. What Samuel's message here is, is really important when we break it up into past, present, future. Verse 17, Samuel says, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Then he affirmed Saul's present judgment in verse 18. You did not obey the Lord and you did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. Then he foretold Saul's future judgment. The very thing he feared more than God himself was being defeated by the Philistines. Right? Verse 19. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. This is what a holy and sovereign God can do, often does. He overrides corrupt moments corrupt moments in a fallen world to fulfill his word. God overrides corrupt moments in a fallen world to fulfill his word. Once Jesus shared this difficult passage with a crowd about living by faith in him, but instead of the crowd continuing to follow Jesus, the majority of them left. Jesus was not surprised, and he looks to his disciples. He says, are you also going to go? And Peter said something so wise when he said, Lord, where else will we go? 
You have the words to eternal life. Ultimately, we have nowhere else to go but to Jesus. And so we do. Otherwise, we risk being confronted with the separation of God. And this is that third dynamic at play. We've seen the the silence of God, the sovereignty of God. Now we're going to look at the separation of God. Saul's story ends as a tragedy. Fallen on the ground, terrified, his worst fear is now realized. But the witch, the, the medium needed him gone because he was just there and she didn't want him there anymore. So she saw that he hadn't eaten all day and there's, there's verses they, after some convincing, they describe her cooking up this food for him to eat so he gets some strength so that he can leave. But verse 25, I want to focus on this where it says, afterward, they got up and left that night. The narrator's note of this event that took place at night isn't just a historical detail. It's also a spiritual analysis. There's a spiritual element tonight. Separation from God is darkness. Separation from God is darkness. There is no light apart from Him. Another example that we see the same kind of thing happening, the same dynamic is in John 13 with Judas. Jesus shared the Last Supper, and we're told after receiving the piece of bread that he immediately left, and it was night. There's another significant meaning as well tied into night. When Jesus hung on the cross, breathing his last few breaths, it says darkness covered the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Savior Jesus was brought into darkness and was met with silence. And in his last breath, he would experience separation. Separation of an almighty, sovereign God. On the cross, Jesus fell under past, present, and future judgment of God as all of our sin, all of the darkest, all of the deep, dark places, all the experiences would be placed on him to bear. But hear the good news. Because coming back to Job 12, he reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deepest darkness into light. God, in all of his sovereignty, commanded the cross of Christ, the deepest, darkest moment in history, so that we might be brought into the light. The mystery is revealed in Jesus. Jesus came to, sin, to save sinners and sufferers like you and me so that we might be brought into the light and never leave it. Because of Jesus, we have a permanent place in the light. And Jesus would make these promises to us in any moment of any moment of fear, any moment of anxiety, any moment when you can't hear God and he feels silent to you and you're asking, 
Why? Jesus makes the promise, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Rest assured, Christian, that Jesus is with you. Those moments that might be, that you've allowed something to fester and grow, bring that to Jesus, and he will astonish you with his wonderful works. How beautiful he is to come to the deepest, darkest places in our lives and say, let there be light. Sin has no more power over you. Darkness will no longer be the reality that you live in because you are in me. The truth of the gospel is revealed to us. We are never silenced or separated be from God because we have Jesus, because we have the light of the world. And that is the hope that we find in passages like this. When we read a passage of hopelessness, we can look on it with hope. When we look on a passage filled with darkness, we see light. When we look at a passage that seems utterly godless, we see a sovereign, powerful God. Amen, church? Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you continue to help us see? Help us see Jesus. Help us see the beauty and majesty of his power and his greatness and how he is the light that we so desperately need. God, we're reminded of the truth that there is far more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. And I pray that the your sovereign power would just let us bask in your wonder and say, you are so good to us. In my moments of sin, I can confess these things to you and I will be met with your very presence. Thank you. Thank you, God, for all that you do in our lives and how you keep us in the light. In Jesus' name, amen.